Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Futureverse, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. I'm Kamal Ahmed. Ytree was founded in 2017 to give its clients the transparency, efficiency, and meaning they need to fully understand their financial lives, as they are and as they could be. This is the final episode in our latest mini-series, in which we've been digging into what it means to be truly successful. And today, we want to get practical. What are the tools and insights that we can use to build happy and healthy lives? To help me out, I'm joined by two leading experts in this field from two different disciplines, a designer and an economist. A mechanical engineer by training, Dave Evans teaches the popular Designing Your Life courses at Stanford and is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life. Dr. Grace Lorden is an associate professor at the London School of Economics and the author of Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. She's also the inaugural director of the Behavioural Science MSc at the LSE and has served as an expert advisor to the UK government, sitting on their Skills and Productivity Board. Grace, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Brilliant. We're going to have a lovely period of time together, but let's just go a little bit into backgrounds for you both. Grace, share a little bit about how you arrived here with this expertise on advising people on their own lives. So, I mean, I, I, I became quite interested in studying productivity from the perspective of firms. So I spent a lot of time looking at teams and what makes teams work better together with respect to being more productive. And from that, I used to get invited to give talks in big companies about productivity from the perspective of the firm, but also why we had these gaps between men and women when it came to pay and promotions. And people would come up to me and say, your talk was was was, was interesting. Behavioral science is interesting, but actually everything you pointed out was things that's beyond my control. What can I do for me? So I, I took this really seriously. There were so many people kind of said it to me over time and, and I thought it would be really nice for me to do some research on the area of how people can propel their own success and what success means to them but also bring together the large literature that was already there in behavioral science. So that's what kind of brought me to writing Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future That You Want, which I hope helps people who are stuck in the wrong career, stagnated in their career, or in some other way want to actually change what they're doing in life, get to where they want to go to. Thanks so much, Grace. Dave, could I come to you? Just a bit of your background. Now, we were joking slightly before we started this recording. Yeah. I'm doing this recording on a Macintosh. Yeah. And you have at least a slight role in the birth of this amazing product. But just start there and then take us through to how you ended up in this amazing position you now find yourself. Yeah, it's 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 a very strange job to have talking to people about designing their lives. No, I spent 35 years in Silicon Valley and high tech stuff, which I fell into pretty accidentally because I couldn't make a living working on advanced energy technology, which is what my degrees were in in 1976. So I had to reinvent myself and I fell into, it's a long, silly story. I fell into Apple in the early days and was the world's first mouse product manager in 1979 before most of your listeners were born. But I was on that very first Apple corporate culture committee with Steve Jobs in 1980. The first year I was at Apple, we grew between from 800 to 5,000 people. 
So that's pretty Whoa. fast. And yeah, about every bus loads of people are arriving daily. And there is sort of this terrorized fear that, oh my God, I mean, all these people from National Semiconductor and Hewlett Packard are arriving at Apple. And, and we're going to suddenly be overtaken by these other people who don't get it. And how do we sustain what makes Apple Apple while all these otherly thinking people suddenly arrive? And so we formed a corporate culture committee before there was such a thing as corporate culture. And what I noticed in that work was everybody cared about their lives. I mean, I was in my late 20s, early 30s, deeply struggling with trying to figure out how to do Dave authentically in the work world, the kind of things that Grace was mentioning. And everybody else was too. So that's been on my mind on the side, corporate culture. How do we create not just cool products, but cool places to work where people can be their real selves in some kind of meaningful way? And then my buddy Bill Burnett started this thing at Stanford. I said, hey, how don't we, why don't we hang out? That was 2007. And then we started teaching a class and off you go. Then we wrote a book and everybody bought it. And then I've got to talk to you. So Dave, tell me, talk to me about what is life design? What, what is it? How does it work? And what are the principles? Okay, well, very briefly, without trying to do a semester in a minute. So in the world of design, by the way, there are largely two completely different categories of design, which I describe as design thinking or design innovation, and then there's craft design. The word design, if you just use it by itself, most people rightly think about graphic design, ergonomic design, furniture design, car design, the people who make cars look cool, those are the designers. And that design has been around since before Gallup da Vinci, and it's a wonderful field. And it's not what we teach at Stanford. What we teach at Stanford is formerly known as HCD, Human Centered Design, started in 1963, integrating engineering, art, and psychology. So it's a different way of thinking. And that way of thinking boils down essentially to prototype iterations. We have a bunch of really cool ideas, then prototype your way forward because we know we don't know what we're doing. We're doing something we've never done before. We're inventing this place to go no one's ever been before called the future. And so you can't analyze it. You can't think it. You can't engineer it. You have to actually empirically try it. So it's a trial and error process, very compatible with Grace's approach to take small steps. So we teach people how to apply these design approaches to designing not a product, but their lives. Dave, can you give me or help our audience, our listeners, with a practical example of that tiny step that I could think about in my life? First of all, we got asked once on one of these live interviews, can you summarize the book in, in a sentence? And you said, well, gosh, that's kind of <laughs> Typical <hard."> journalist. <laughs> yeah, but we came up with four sentences, but it's only 10 Ooh. words. And so the posted version of the entire book is... Get curious, talk to people, try stuff, tell your story. So if you do those four things and understand how they interrelate, you're good to go. You can skip the 232 pages or whatever it is. And an example would be, gosh, I'm in my career and I'm pretty, I'm doing finance and I'm pretty bored. I think I want to do marketing and, and I know what I need to do. I need to stop out. I need to get an MBA at night. I need to go to the LSC where Grace teaches. And then you finish that master's degree and then you, you do job interviewing and then you, you get your first six months and go, oh, I, I, this is what marketing really is. I don't like this very much at all. Okay. That's a really good example of not doing life design. It's the way a lot of people would make a strategic decision and have you committed and are you all in? And it's a terrible approach. And so we would say, look, you if you were going to prototype that, you'd go have coffee with a bunch of people who not only were working in marketing, but it made the shift to marketing from some other field. And what they learned about what was different and what was, how did they, how did they 
handle their misperceptions and have, what were they surprised by? So do this experiential thing, we call that life prototyping, in order to get, as Dan Gilbert would say, from a research point of view, surrogation input, not simulation input. Grace, explain to me in the same way as people who, some people who may not understand, behavioral science. How does behavioral science, which is a really growing discipline, someone, I was formerly the economics editor of BBC, and one thing there was behavioral economics. And this notion of behavioral science, how does that help us understand human decision-making? So I think a very easy way to think about behavioral science is just that it is the study of human behavior. And it's a really important area of study because very often human beings make plans to do particular things and they'll declare boldly that they're going to make a change in a particular direction. And they, in fact, will fail at that. And they will repeatedly declare that they're going to do something and they just don't show up for themselves. So that intent action gap is one big area of study within behavioral science. I think if you came to the LSE, one of the first things we talk about with students is owed to Danny Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize, and his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, I couldn't recommend it more highly, but that there's two different thinking styles. So one, very, very fast, you're on autopilot, it's habit-driven. The other is very, very slow and very, very deliberate. And I think what's fascinating about these two thinking styles is that the best evidence that we have suggests that we spend about 80 to 95% of our waking hours actually in this habit-driven mode. So when you think about your career, I guess you want to think about two things. And when you think about success, you want to think about two things. First, how do you define where you want to go? And then I guess the second thing is, given that we know people don't really regularly show up for themselves, how do we get them to do this very, very regularly and very, very routinely? So how do we get them to take this, these small steps? And I think behavioral science has a lot of insights in that regard about how the biases that are more likely to kind of circumvent you from getting to where you want to go and how you as an individual can strategize to make sure that you actually do show up for yourself. And Grace, again, as I said to Dave, can you make this practical for us? What what would be some actual real life examples of 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 how this 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 method really that Dave and you are both putting forward for how to think about the future of our lives, particularly in the workplace, how practically that might uh, be revealed? So I think thinking about jobs as bundles of tasks is a very effective way to go forward. So rather than thinking of yourself, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a marketer, I want to be an accountant, think about what are the things that you enjoy doing that absolutely give you flow in that particular moment. And I think a practical tip for um, people who are listening is that you should be doing that at least 90 minutes a week. So really kind of saying there's a minimum threshold that I'm going to show up for my future self and it's 90 minutes a week. And the reason that it's, I, I, I put that as so low is that this is kind of the minimum time that's been shown to be effective in investing yourself that leads to compounding effects. But also there's going to be listeners who'll say, well, I have caring responsibilities. I have to work to pay the mortgage. I have to do, I have to do. And that there will always be constraints to stand in your way. But everybody can carve up 90 minutes in the week to show up for themselves to kind of move them towards a different future. And I think if you're not doing that right now, it's really important that you get started. Grace, you said at the top of the this podcast that lots of people maybe don't feel empowered to have this approach. What what do you say to people who said, well, yeah, that's all very well, but actually I've got to apply for a certain job and then I've just got to apply myself to that job. Are there ways that you can think about that if you are more junior in a team, for example? I mean, I think anything that says that I have to do something, people should be questioning it. So there's always going to be a subset of people out there who say, look, this isn't for me. I think who I'm trying to speak to are people who know that they're sitting in the wrong job, who know that they're not going fast enough, who know that they haven't necessarily uh, they haven't necessarily found their passion. 
And for them, visualizing their future selves is, is a really good way to get motivated. So I think we are, most of us um, and most of your listeners will be engaged in their community in some way or engage with their colleagues in some way that you take care of other people. So you pay it forward, you pay it backwards, and you you, you really look out for other people. Much, much less of us actually look out for our future selves in the same way and give ourselves the same time. So I like to visualize my future self as kind of a community of people and thinking about when Grace is 40 years of age, is she going to be taken care of when she's 50, when she's 60, when she's 70? And what am I actually doing now that sets them up for success? And what am I doing now that sets my current self up for success? And again, I think that can be a really good motivator. Can I jump in and just agree with Grace and add on to that? One thing we find a lot is, particularly with young people, young early career people, particularly if they feel like they're stuck in a job and they're overwhelmed by the tasks, is I'm, I'm trying to find, I'm trying to get it right. You know, this isn't it. It's got to be over there. I'm in the wrong place. And, and so I need to make this big move. In our second book, Designing Your New Work Life, we talk about the best person to get a better job from is you. Don't resign, redesign. Get whatever your assignment is figured out and then recognize there's lots of room around the side where you can make incremental changes, what we call sort of four strategies for modifying your job. Level one is to just re-enlist, tell the story you're telling yourself a different story, a different narrative that allows you to have a different experience of meaning making and satisfaction. That's literally just changing your story. That can be profoundly effective. The second one, my favorite, is remodeling. I can make minor changes. I can do one-on-one -on -one conversations with my team members, not necessarily a staff meeting. I can make minor structural changes that correspond to how I work and really satisfactory to me. I can relocate, I can maybe jump departments or what have you within an organization that already trusts me. You don't always have to make a big change or cram a bunch of new stuff in. Most people are leaving tons of value on the table in the in the life that's in front of them right now. I love that. I, lo I love the idea of job crafting. So you're in a role, moving slowly, slowly towards tasks that I actually love while still doing some of the things that I, um, that, 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 I, that I enjoy less. Dave, one of the key arguments that you make is that there is no one purpose for you as an individual, which we're often taught yeah. is actually you should have that one driving desire. Just unpack that a little bit for our audiences. It's probably our central dysfunctional belief. We talk a lot about dysfunctional beliefs. That's a psychological term for ideas that are popular and either at least ungenerative or in many cases, just flat out untrue. So what is your passion? Okay, that question believes things. The research shows eight out of 10 people answer that question. Gosh, I don't know, Dave, I haven't found mine yet. Or I've got a bunch. Which one did you want to hear about first? Now, either of those people who represent what's called completely normal human beings um, are not directed, do not have the directivity of a singular passion, and they think something is wrong with them. Number two, it's singular. Number three, it can be turned into a career. Number four, you'll earn, you'll know it early in life before you've even done it. And number five, the world's going to let you make a living doing it. And guess what? Eh, all five of those are false. Not one of those is true. So be very careful which questions you decide to authorize to judge your life. All right. And what's your passion is a lousy question to judge your life. Do live purposefully. I mean, like, what are you doing and why? You want a really good answer to that that's consistent with who you are as a human being, but like, that's it. That's my single purpose. That singularity, that exclusivity idea, my one snowflake version of life is an incredibly attractive idea. Frankly, it's a reasonably arrogant one. There is, I am so utterly unique. There's only one thing that the universe wants from me. And I, I've been put here to do that one thing. So lighten up, relax a little bit. You're never going to get fulfilled. Fulfilled means all of you is happening. 
You're way too big to have all of you happening. Dave, yeah. give me an example where this has helped you. And I'm going to come to the, to you as well, Grace. I think this is, but Dave, give me an example where some different yous appeared and helped you make a decision. Well, I'm looking at one right now. So, I mean, a couple of months ago, I turned 70. So I'm 70 years old. I have 11 grandchildren. And I've done all this stuff. I've had five careers. I've got some choices in front of me. So my next milestone is death. Death is my next big milestone. And so, like, what do I do? So I could be... The education reformer, run over to LSE, hang out with Grace. I mean, to run around the world, do this education reform thing. We don't talk about this enough with young people. We should change education back to adult formation. Go for it, Dave. Change the planet before you die. Thing number one. Thing number two, I've got 11 grandkids. My father killed himself when I was nine. I didn't have a dad growing up. I was a pretty good dad. I could be a world-class grandfather if I just decided to invest deeply in these 11 lives. Or, or I could go off and just... The heck with you guys. I, 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 I gave my goods. I've sold a million books. What do you want from me? I'm going to get my bareboat captain certification, go down to the Caribbean and sail catamarans. Now, those are pretty different people. And those are legitimate choices I actually can make. Can't do all three at the same time. And Dave, how is your system or how could your system help you make good choices given those amazing opportunities you have ahead of you? It starts with all three of them are viable expressions of who Dave is. I could literally do any one of those three people. And if I lived into them well, in, including both the opportunities and accepting the constraints, we could generate a happy person there. But they're happy very, very different ways. So I actually have an exercise where you write a letter back to your present self. You assume five or 10 years from now, you lived that life. You imaginally become that future person in 2030 three. And he writes a letter back to you and says what that life was like. And then you listen to those guys and decide which one of those people, which one of those memories would you like to actually experience? And it's not better or worse. There's not a right answer. Like the real one shimmers and the other ones fade away. Sometimes that occurs. That's great. But if you're really lucky, it's an impossibly hard decision. And then you have to accept it's not about having everything. It's about having worthwhile things. Grace. I, I'm just sitting here. I think Dave should do all three. I think he should. He should, <laughs> he should say three years. I'm going to do three years of education, three years with the grandkids, and then I'm off to the beach. They can visit me if they want. I'll have these amazing relationships. They're welcome. Okay, okay. They're welcome anytime. I think you could do all three. It's similar, Kamal. It, it, it really is. So I think that there isn't kind of one passion that I've had in 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 my career that has kind of driven what I'm doing. And, and as I kind of go through my career, I would describe what I do now as a portfolio career. So kind of creating this portfolio of tasks that go around my core career for me has been incredibly valuable. And, and unlike Dave, where he has kind of three big things to choose from, all of these are possible with some kind of crafty time balancing. And I think for people who are listening who do feel torn in a number of directions. Maybe having a portfolio career is something that you can you can look into. It doesn't need to be one thing that you that you do to generate income. And also actually doing multiple things can be something that brings joy to people as well, depending on their personality. And Grace, let, let's talk about the few of the 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 words, the descriptors that are used in behavioral science, which is Pygmalion effect, confirmation bias, omission versus action bias. Can you just take us through some of that terminology and and how we can how that can help us think more cleverly about our futures? 
Well, I mean, one thing that I say to people who really have no idea where they want to go is that they should get themselves a diverse boardroom. So they should surround themselves with people who are quite different for themselves and really try to leverage their advice. And the reason that I say that is because of confirmation bias. So as individuals, we tend to seek out people who think exactly the same as ourselves. But you as an individual, one of the best gifts you can give to yourself is get the perspectives of individuals who are very different to what's actually going on in your life. And if you get people who are the right people, two things happen. You get the great advice. So you kind of overcome your confirmation bias. But all these other biases like availability bias, familiarity bias, start being challenged by this diverse network. And what's even even more fantastic is very often they'll give you opportunities that you would not necessarily have, have had yourself. And you've mentioned the Pygmalion effect, which is one of my favorite studies where these researchers went into, into a US school back in the 60s and they pointed out the high ability kids and they left. And they when they went back, your listeners mightn't be surprised that the high ability kids were the ones who were thriving the most until I tell you that the high ability kids were just randomly selected. The researchers had no clue as to who was high ability and who was low ability. And the reason we explain that is about belief. So if you have people, your diverse boardroom, who believe in you, you'll start rising to the occasion. So if people are suffering from kind of lower self-confidence, imposter syndrome, all these things that are stopping them getting going, and they can self-motivate, just putting yourself in front of people who are diverse and critical. I think that second part is really important. You, you, do, you don't want people who are going to hug you and tell you you're right in every situation. You want people who will be critical and kind of push you forward that's going to give you the Pygmalion effect, which really is, if you suffer from self-belief, one of the biggest gifts you can give to yourself. I love this terminology stuff because I think that it really helps people think about their futures. Now, big scary word, big scary word, failure. How, Grace, I'm going to come to you first. How do we think about failure? And Grace, I'm just going to say, we've heard a lot of people say, failure should be treated as a success. It's part of your life's journey. So I get that big of it, bit of it, but I imagine that you might have an even cleverer take on what failure even is. I mean, I think if, if, I, if I had my way, I would ban the word failure when it comes to thinking about career progression. And, and people say you should fail fast, you should experiment fast. So try and learn as much as you can. And, and that really is all failure is. When we think about labeling things success versus failure, we imagine that there's this kind of binary world where everything's within our control. And if we put in enough effort, we'll get to succeed. And if we don't, we get to fail. And that's not true. So rather than failing fast, we should experiment fast. But I think equally when we succeed, we should be doing postmortems and asking ourselves, why did I succeed in this situation? Did I just get lucky or was it something specific that I actually did that allowed me to realize this success? I know that when we anticipate failure, even more than experiencing failure itself, it can hold people back because there's some evidence in the literature and there's kind of more people studying this at the moment, that the physical effects that you have when you anticipate and you you think about failure are much larger than actually going through the failure itself because people are beautifully are beautifully resilient. So for me, for people listening, I, w I wouldn't just question what your attitude to failure is. I would also probe yourself if what's keeping you stuck is anticipating failure and never getting off those starting blocks. Dave, similar question. Failure, good or bad word? How do we think about it? It comes up a lot, and we're big, large because in the design world, we're famous for saying you want to attain failure immunity, very much that fail fast to succeed sooner thing, which is true, but that's actually couched very specifically in that prototypes, a prototype's job is to learn something 
So of course it's going to fail. You never wanted your prototype to become the, 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 the outcome. And now we've, that idea of failure immunity has gotten so popular that I think we've done people a disservice. We need to own that when you've got something at stake and it doesn't happen, it's costly and the experience is called grief. So I think in the process of trying to get people to, to overcome unnecessary fear of failure, we start inadvertently judging people who are in the cost of working through the consequence. There is a consequence to something not happening as intended. So know when you're set up with very little or nothing at stake and know when you've got something at stake and both plan and process accordingly. When it, when it fails, what's the first question you ask yourself? And 19 out of 20 people's first question is, what did I do wrong? And that's one of those very, very powerful questions because it's a terrible question. That question believes two things. One is, if I had done everything right, it would have worked. Not necessarily. Not necessarily, because there are you know, a whole lot of things <laughs> over which you have no control whatsoever that have nothing to do with that you did it right or wrong. So a much better question when something doesn't work out, which is implied in what Grace just said, I want to double down on that, is not what did I do wrong or what did we screw up? It's what happened. Just the objective question, including things over which we had no control whatsoever. And so is this just, as she said, luck, is it just a circumstance from which I move on? Or is there something to learn about? We're all finite. We're learning on our way to go. Do objective analysis and learn appropriately, but stop beating yourself up for stuff you can't do. I would like just to finish off from each of you in turn to give me, give our audience, give the people watching this, just one tool or one exercise that they can practice maybe or do every day to help them center themselves and have that great chance at health, happiness, and success. Grace, could I come to you first? Yeah, I mean, as human beings, we are philosophers, and we tend to be drawn much more to the losses that happen to us in the in our daily lives, in our week, as opposed to the things that we actually have. So, for example, if a colleague passes me today and they're incredibly rude to me, or they slight me, or they interrupt me in a meeting, that's going to weigh much more on me than a positive interaction that I can have with a colleague. And if we're thinking about happy lives, I think you need to consciously offset that through practicing gratitude. And you, if you're somebody who doesn't like to journal, this can be as simple as having an alarm on your phone on, at your 6 p.m. commute home, or at 6 p.m. when you put down your laptop and saying, bring me five things into my mind that I'm actually grateful for. And the way the human mind works is if you don't do that, it will continue to be drawn to your losses and what's going wrong, which can make you quite miserable. But if you do do it, and if you give your brain an instruction, you're kind of changing the narrative of your story. So even on the crummiest days, when things don't go right, maybe it's a prototype or maybe it's something that's even bigger for you, just kind of centering yourself and saying, here, give me five things that are going really well in this day and give me five more things that are going well in general is a good way to live a happy life. Dave, can I come to you? But Grace, just to build on that very briefly, my executive coach said to me, on the way home, Kamal, think about the three things that went well, not the 10 things that went badly. And I do stick to that. Yeah, let me double down on that a little bit and actually give you sort of a granularity to sort of zoom in on it. One of the things we bump into all the time is one of the dysfunctions is there are a lot of uh, dualities out there. 
which we think are frankly dysfunctional. So I got work-life balance. And I, I tend to think as a, as a duality, you know, if work goes up, life goes down. If life goes up, work goes down. So you know, if you're in marketing, do I want market share or profitability? And we set up all these binary ways of thinking, many of which are false. And one of the classics is the being versus doing. Am I a human being or am I a human doing? And they treat me like a doing at the, at the job. And we get into this being doing flip-flop thing. And our reframe on that is a generative cycle rather than a destructive competition in a teeter-totter, which is the being, doing, becoming. So if you, you define a human being as a becoming, we're going to grow, we're going to get better. If I'm going to get better, I was worse, by the way. I had to have been worse yesterday in order to get better tomorrow. That's built in. Then my question simply is, how am I fueling my becoming? And that becoming, I want to be correlated to, so I start with who I really am, I being, and then I go out in the world and do stuff, but I'm trying to learn from what I'm doing and experience things that are expressions of my authentic self. And that's a becoming, then my becoming progresses, my being upgrades and around we go in a nice virtuous circle rather than a vicious cycle. And so the exercise would be, because there is no such, you, you can't do the ultimate ever. You can't say, let's go do beauty. What do you mean? Well, I can I can make a beautiful cup of coffee, but I can't like just do beauty. Let's let's do justice. I need to do justice. Well, I could do something justly. So philosophically, this is called the scandal of particularity. It turns out the ultimate is only expressed in the ridiculous. So there's no such thing as I was entirely myself today. That doesn't exist. So you look back on that. You do that gratefulness thing. But now what you're doing, you do a particular lens. I'm looking for when today did I actually have an opportunity to express or do, or act out, or collaborate in something that mattered to me. So, like, being a collaborator really mattered to me today. So when I, when I asked that one more question on our team meeting, and then Grace showed up with that idea, which was not in her, her normal area of expertise. She, she shared something about the way we write, and she's normally a process person. And then I, see, I saw her smile. And so I helped real collaboration occur today, and that's who I want to be in the world. I feel great about that. That's just, oh, it was really cool when Grace shared that thing. But because that's an expression of my value set. So you get good at daily looking for those little moments. They're little moments, particular moments, when an authentic version of you got a chance to show up in the world for a couple of minutes or have an impact or have a, have a participation. So look, look for places you got to show up in a meaningful way and celebrate them. Grace and Dave, what a lovely place to end. Amazing. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. And if any of the issues we have discussed in today's episode have sparked your interest, please do visit y-tree.com to find out more about Y-Tree and the work they are doing to provide an alternative perspective on money and life. Thank you so much for listening.